welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 53, Major Trial Finds Screening Colonoscopy Fails to Save Lives. Back in 2016, I ran a webinar for my EmpowerEd membership group on cancer screening. You can view this webinar along with many hundreds of hours of other webinars on all things nutrition and health related by taking advantage of the one month free trial of EmpowerEd membership and there's a link in the post accompanying this podcast episode. During this webinar, I noted that the first randomized controlled trial of screening colonoscopy for the prevention of colorectal cancer would report its findings in the mid-2020s. Well, those results have been reported a little earlier than expected, and they validate the skepticism that I expressed about cancer screening in general during the 2016 webinar. In a nutshell, people who were invited to undergo screening colonoscopy were less likely to be diagnosed with colorectal cancer, but they were not less likely to die from colorectal cancer, nor did they have any lower risk of dying overall. Now, there are some important nuances to this study, and we'll get to them. But first, let's zoom out and ask some higher-order questions about the purpose and value of cancer screening programs in general. Question 1. What is cancer screening? Answer. Cancer screening is a systematic attempt to detect cancer before it becomes clinically apparent in asymptomatic individuals using laboratory tests, imaging studies, or physical examination. Examples include screening mammograms to detect breast cancer, pap smears to detect cervical cancer, and screening colonoscopy to detect cancer of the bowel and rectum. Importantly, cancer screening is not the same as a diagnostic test although the same procedures are used for both screening and diagnosis. People with symptoms, such as a new lump in the breast or bleeding from the bowel, should see their doctor for appropriate diagnostic testing. Question 2. What is the intention of cancer screening? Answer. Screening programs aim to detect cancer at an early stage, on the assumption that it will be more treatable. The intention is to spare the patient from the more aggressive treatments that are used on advanced cancers and to lower the death rate from that particular cancer. Question 3. How well does cancer screening work? Answer. It depends on what you mean by work. Cancer screening programs undoubtedly detect more early stage tumours. However, many, if not most, of these small tumours are indolent, that is, they are slow-growing and unlikely to metastasize or spread to vital organs. Hence, detecting them at an early stage and treating them as cancer won't save lives because indolent tumours are highly unlikely to result in death, no matter how long they hang around. In fact, many of them may have spontaneously regressed had they remained undetected. Meanwhile, screening is very likely to miss truly deadly cancers, which simply grow and spread too fast to be detected by periodic examinations. In fact, the term interval cancers was coined to denote aggressive tumours that spring up in the interval between screening tests. In one of my previous articles, called New Study on Screening Mammography Shows More Harms Than Benefits, 
which I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode, I reproduced a chart from an article which examined the impact of a government-funded screening mammography program on the incidence of and death from breast cancer in Victoria. I'm going to do my best to describe the chart, but my suggestion is that you go and have a look at it in the post accompanying this podcast episode. When you take a look at that chart, you'll notice that the lines representing the crude incidence of breast cancer at stage 1 and 2 shot up after the federally funded breast screen program was launched in 1991, and this indicates overdiagnosis. More on that in a minute. However, diagnoses of advanced breast cancer also continue to rise. You'll see this on the chart where there's a line depicting combined stage 3 and 4 cancer incidents. And in fact, these diagnoses of advanced breast cancer almost doubled in the two decades after the breast screen program began, indicating that it was failing to detect lethal breast cancers at an early stage. A quote from the study, Assessment of Breast Cancer Mortality Trends Associated with Mammographic Screening and Adjuvant Therapy from 1986 to 2013 in the of Victoria, Australia. Quote, crude incidence of advanced stages 3 and 4 breast cancer increased by 96% from 12.2 to 23.9 per 100,000 women from 1986 to 2013, ruling out a direct association of mammographic screening with breast cancer mortality. End of quote. H. Gilbert Welch uses the barnyard pen of cancers analogy to characterise the highly heterogeneous grab bag of diagnoses collectively labelled cancer into three types of animal, with the fence representing screening. Birds represent the most lethal type of cancer. No fence can contain them. They simply fly away. By the time bird cancers are detected, they've already spread around the body, invading vital organs. Conventional cancer treatments hold no hope of cure. At best, life may be prolonged by surgery, chemotherapy, radiation or immunotherapy, but at the cost of side effects that dramatically reduce quality of life. Rabbits could be contained if you build enough fences. Catching rabbits is the mainstay of cancer screening. This would be worthwhile if rabbit cancers would have gone on to cause life-threatening illness if they had not been detected, but research indicates that this is rarely the case. In the small minority of people in whom screening caught a rabbit that would have gone on to kill them, detecting it early would only be of benefit if the treatments for that cancer type were effective at curing it and did not cause harms that outweigh their benefits. By the time we apply all these criteria, we're in unicorn land. And finally, turtles can easily be contained by fencing, but since they weren't going anywhere anyway, there's no point in putting the effort into building the fence. It's the turtles and rabbits that are most likely to be detected by cancer screening. Hence, cancer screening results in considerable overdiagnosis. That is, many people are told that they have cancer and undergo aggressive treatment which may lead to lifespan-shortening health problems, including, ironically enough, cancer, for a tumour which would never have led to serious illness or death if it had remained undetected. Listen to Gilbert Welch explain it clearly and concisely. Overdiagnosis is the detection of a cancer that is not destined to ever cause symptoms or death. You might remember it as cancers that don't matter. Now that may be a pretty foreign or new idea for you. And understanding overdiagnosis requires thinking about the word cancer differently. I suggest you give yourself more than 10 minutes to really learn about it. When I was in medical school, I was taught that a cancerous cell would progress to cause in situ cancer, which would progress to cause invasive cancer, 
which would progress to metastatic cancer, which would ultimately lead to death. It was a stepwise process that was invariably going forward. We now realize the world's a more complicated place. A cancerous cell can progress to in situ cancer or it can stop. In situ cancer can progress to invasive cancer or it can stop. Invasive cancer may progress to metastatic cancer or it may stop. And metastatic cancer may lead to cancer death or it may not. That leads us to a new conception of cancer. You might think of three types of cancer. The birds, the rabbits, and the turtles. The goal of early detection is to sort of fence these in. But you can't fence a bird in. It can fly away. Those are the worst form, the most rapidly growing forms of cancer. The rabbits you may catch if you build enough fences. Those would be the cancers that might benefit from screening. But the third type of cancer is the turtle, and they're not going anywhere anyway. You don't need a fence there. That leads to an uncomfortable reality. The pathologic diagnosis of cancer encompasses a wide variety of abnormalities. The familiar, what I learned in medical school, were cellular abnormalities which, if left untreated, progressed to cause death. The unfamiliar, cellular abnormalities that do not progress and may even regress. Those are the turtles. Let me share with you an article from Life magazine by Dr. George Cryl. It's entitled, A Plea Against the Blind Fear of Cancer. And I'll just quote a paragraph here. In clinical practice, to say that a person has cancer gives us little information about the possible course of his disease as to say he has an infection. There are dangerous infections that may be fatal, and there are harmless infections that are self-limited or may disappear. The same is true of cancers. Cancer is not a single entity. It is a broad spectrum of diseases related to each other only in name. This article appeared in the year I was born, 1955. A rude reminder that I've never had an original idea in my life. It's an uncomfortable reality. There are a lot of turtles out there. At least a third of adults harbor small thyroid cancers. About a third of women aged 40 to 49 harbor small breast cancers. Over half of men over age 60 harbor small prostate cancers. In the past, doctors treated a population and they waited for problems to develop and then they diagnosed and treated the cancer. The early diagnosis ideal was to take that same population and through early diagnosis, find those patients earlier in time, with the hope that the natural history of those individuals were those who were destined to develop problems. But the current reality is quite different. Early diagnosis always seems to identify more patients. So now the natural history must be more complex. Hopefully, we've identified those who are destined to develop problems, but we've also diagnosed those not destined to develop problems, the turtles. They are the overdiagnosed and needlessly treated fraction. Question four, are there harms from cancer screening? Answer, yes, several times. 
First, the screening test itself can result in harms or can lead to further diagnostic procedures with the potential for harm. For example, as mentioned in my previous article, Preventing Bowel Cancer, for every 10,000 screening colonoscopies performed, four will result in perforation of the colon and eight in a major intestinal bleeding episode, both of which are potentially fatal. In another previous article, PSA screening leads to unnecessary treatment and suffering, I described how routine measurement of prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, frequently results in a referral for prostate biopsy, which carries significant risks, including rectal bleeding, blood in the semen, difficulty with passing urine, fever, infection, sexual impairment, and decreased libido. In addition, heightened anxiety whilst waiting for the results of the biopsy may result in prescription of psychoactive medications, bringing a fresh new load of risks into the equation. And mammograms involve exposure of breast tissue to ionising radiation, which is a known carcinogen. Having biannual mammograms may increase the risk of developing breast cancer, especially in women who are genetically hypersusceptible to radiation-induced cancer. The second major risk is overdiagnosis, discussed previously. Overdiagnosis leads to the psychological stress of becoming a cancer patient, even though you don't actually have a life-threatening disease, and puts you at risk of treatment-related harms. Given the lack of overall mortality benefit, which we'll discuss next, if you are a victim of overdiagnosis, you won't live any longer. You'll just live longer with a diagnosis of cancer, that is, if you're not killed by the unnecessary treatment. The third potential harm is that if screening identifies cancer, you will be pressured to undergo cancer treatment, which may include surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and or hormonal therapy. Each of these forms of treatment carries harms, which may or may not exceed their benefits for your particular case of cancer. And finally, getting the all clear from a screening test might give you a false sense of security, causing you to become less likely to engage in health-promoting behaviour. This self-licensing effect could end up increasing your risk of developing cancer or other chronic degenerative diseases in future. For example, in the NORCAP trial, which assessed the value of flexible sigmoidoscopy screening for colorectal cancer, quote, three years after screening, attenders were more likely to gain weight and were less likely to stop smoking, engage in physical activity and eat fruit and vegetables compared to a randomly chosen sample from the control group, end of quote. That quote is from a study called Flexible Sigmoidoscopy versus Fecal blood testing for colorectal cancer screening in asymptomatic individuals. Question 5. Might getting screened for cancer save my life? Answer. Given the relentless propaganda campaigns pushing various forms of cancer screening, it may surprise you to learn that cancer screening has never been shown to save lives. Some, but by no means all, randomised controlled trials of cancer screening have found that people who undergo screening are less likely to die from that particular cancer. However, many of the same studies found that overall mortality was higher in the screened group. According to the authors of this study, quote, in five of the 12 trials, differences in the two mortality rates went in opposite directions, suggesting opposite effects of screening. In four of these five trials, disease-specific mortality was lower in the screened group than in the control group, whereas all-cause mortality was the same or higher. In two of the remaining seven trials, the mortality rate differences were in the same direction, but their magnitudes were inconsistent. That is, the difference in all-cause mortality exceeded the disease-specific mortality in the control group. Thus, results of seven of the 12 trials were inconsistent in their direction or magnitude, end quote. And that quote is from a paper called All-Cause Mortality in Randomized Trials of Cancer Screening. 
The lack of overall mortality benefit is acknowledged even by advocates of screening. For example, the US Preventive Services Task Force, the USPTSF, which recommends that women aged 50 to 74 have mammograms every two years, found that, quote, none of the trials nor the combined meta-analysis demonstrated a difference in all-cause mortality with screening mammography, end of quote. That quote is from Screening for Breast Cancer, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force Recommendation Statement. USPTSF also currently, as of 2021, recommends screening for colorectal cancer starting at age 45 years and continuing until age 75 years. But in their 2016 recommendation statement, they admitted that, quote, to date, no method of screening for colorectal cancer has been shown to reduce all-cause mortality in any age group, end quote. That quote is from Screening for Colorectal Cancer, US Preventive Services Task Force Recommendation Statement. One of the screening methods that USPSTF endorses for colorectal cancer is, of course, colonoscopy. And that brings us back, at last, to that recently published randomised controlled trial of screening colonoscopy. Nearly 85,000 people aged 55 to 64 years from Poland, Norway and Sweden participated in the trial. Roughly one-third of participants were invited to undergo a single screening colonoscopy, the invited group, while the remaining two-thirds received no invitation or screening, the usual care group. 0.98% of the people in the invited group were diagnosed with colorectal cancer during the follow-up period, a median of 10 years, compared to 1.2% of the usual care group. This is a relative risk reduction of 18% and an absolute risk reduction of 0.22%. However, there was no statistically significant reduction in the risk of death from colorectal cancer, 0.28% in the invited group and 0.31% in the usual care group, or in all-cause mortality, which was 11% in both groups. 455 people needed to be invited to undergo screening to prevent one case of colorectal cancer. The researchers were at pains to point out that only 42% of the invited group actually had a colonoscopy, and they estimated that the risk of colorectal cancer would have been reduced by 31%, and the risk of dying of colorectal cancer by 50% if everyone in the invited group had actually been screened. Another concern raised by Lancet editorialists is that many of the colonoscopies performed for the trial failed to meet quality benchmarks, suggesting that precancerous tumours may have been missed. But even if everyone in the invited group had showed up for a colonoscopy and every colonoscopy had been perfectly performed, the effect on overall mortality would be vanishingly small. Remember, while 11% of usual care participants died during follow-up, only 0.31% of them died of colorectal cancer. Not only would screening colonoscopy have had no impact on all those other deaths, it may even have contributed to them through the self-licensing effect that I described before, in which being given a clean bill of health on cancer screening appeared to disincentivize people to maintain good health habits. What is the gain to you if you're saved from a grisly death from colorectal cancer at the age of 75, only to die of a heart attack instead, because your AOK on the colonoscopy report lulled you into believing that you could get away with smoking, eating garbage, and being overweight and lazy. And finally, it's worth bearing in mind that the colorectal cancers that are most likely to kill you are birds. They've already flown away before you get the chance to participate in a screening program of any kind. 
quote, not all colon cancer is biologically similar and amenable to mortality reduction through early detection, end quote. That quote is from a paper called Blood-Based Screening for Colon Cancer, a Disruptive Innovation or Simply a Disruption. Why do governments continue to promote cancer screening programs? Most cancer screening programs fail to achieve their objectives. On the whole, they don't catch cancer early when it's easy to treat because aggressive cancers grow and spread too quickly to be detected through periodic screening. They don't reliably decrease the risk of dying from that particular type of cancer and they don't reduce all-cause mortality. And just a footnote, cervical cancer screening may be an exception to that rule, but definitive evidence of all-cause mortality reduction is still lacking. Cancer screening programs are also incredibly expensive. So why do governments still push them so aggressively? There are several contributing factors, including firstly, inertia. Cancer screening programs are now well entrenched and have built up a bureaucracy whose primary mission is to perpetuate and expand itself, as was brilliantly satirized in pretty much every episode of Yes Minister. Secondly, vote buying. For a politician chasing the woman vote, flinging extra money at breast cancer screening is a favoured strategy, while funding bowel cancer screening kits earns brownie points, <laughs> no pun intended, with a pensioner lobby. Thirdly, we have catering to interest groups. Medical technology companies, laboratories and doctors are major beneficiaries of government-subsidised screening programs. Pharmaceutical companies also cash in on the additional patients generated by screening. Carrying favour with these wealthy interest groups by promoting screening increases the chances of garnering political donations. Fourthly, we have sharing competence. The past three years of ridiculous COVID policy has amply demonstrated that most politicians wouldn't know a cost-benefit analysis from a Coles lettuce. And finally, rank cowardice and total failure of leadership. Those who do understand why cost-benefit analyses should be run on every single policy they propose or implement are too cowed by fear of electoral backlash if they defund cancer-spreading programs that the public has been fooled into believing are saving lives. So, what should you do? Just because cancer screening programs are, on the whole, ineffective at achieving outcomes that really matter to most people, like living longer in good health, doesn't mean that you're powerless to protect yourself against this dreaded disease, or more accurately, this heterogeneous grab bag of diagnoses that have only the word cancer in common with each other. I have a whole section in the article library on my website on cancer, which I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode, and I strongly urge you to peruse it. But since the topic of this article is colorectal cancer, it's hard to go past the advice of Dr. Dennis Burkett, an Irish surgeon and medical researcher who worked in Uganda for several decades and after whom Burkett's lymphoma is named. Observing the stark differences in the incidence of chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, gallbladder disease, hypertension, constipation and colorectal cancer between Africans and his own countrymen, Burkett concluded that the unrefined, fibre-rich diet eaten in Africa was the key to freedom from these diseases. Here are some of his most famous sayings. Quote, diseases can rarely be eliminated through early diagnosis or good treatment, but prevention can eliminate disease. End of quote. And another one, quote, the only way we are going to reduce disease is to go backward to the diets and lifestyles of our ancestors, end of quote. Third one, quote, the frying pan you should give to your enemy. Food should not be prepared in fat. Our bodies are adapted to a Stone Age diet of roots and vegetables, end quote. 
And finally, perhaps my favourite, quote, societies that eat unrefined foods produce large stools and build small hospitals. Societies that eat fibre depleted foods produce small stools and build large hospitals. And there's a drawing in the post accompanying this podcast episode, which summarises the point very neatly. I won't even attempt to describe it. You just have to see this one. I also have links in the post accompanying this podcast episode to several of my previous articles on cancer for your further edification and self-empowerment. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.